So much of U.S. governance relies on the town hall tradition for local decisions and citizen feedback with elected representatives. You're listening to The Purple Principle. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Corsetti. But in our polarized times, even before COVID, the town hall style meetings of elected officials and especially members of Congress were often so disruptive and so dysfunctional. Now, and let me let me explain this. So much. Let's do it now. We're hearing from you soon. We got questions now. You want to have a conversation later? I'm happy to have it, buddy. But until that time, sit down and shut up. The result being that a huge number of elected representatives cut back on town halls or stopped having them all together. But the nonprofit, nonpartisan group Civic Genius is trying to bring civility and common cause back to congressional town hall meetings. So far, their citizen panels do have a very different tone. Hi, Congressman Fitzpatrick. So nice that you could be with us this week. Forgive me, because I don't know exactly where I arrived in the process. Does that surprise you, worry you, or give you pause? Implicit bias training, I think, is so important because so many of us think we're unbiased, and we learn perhaps we are. A bipartisan group of congressional representatives have attended these panels so far, and they include Republican Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania and Democrat Jamie Raskin of Maryland. These and other Congress members have remarked on the difference as well. You all said things that made me rethink some things today. Here. I do think when people get into a group like this, that people try to be fair-minded and not like, you know, cable news commentators. That was great give and take. There is an opportunity to find common ground on many of these issues, even some of the tougher issues like immigration and border security. Join us today on The Purple Principle as we speak with the executive director of Civic Genius, Jillian Youngblood, on the surprising overlap among Americans across the spectrum on a great many issues. I think at this point, more than 150 specific policy proposals where majorities of Democrats and Republicans agree, which is absolutely wild. We'll also speak with Dr. Stephen Cull, a voice of the people. His survey group identifies participants for these citizen panels and prepares briefing materials to help shape a healthy debate. There is this tendency to think that people are fundamentally polarized, but in fact, they kind of naturally see both sides. Let's start by talking with Jillian Youngblood on the origins of her group, Civic Genius, and the idea of holding citizen panels. Yeah, we've been around uh, since 2017 is officially when the organization started. The genesis of it actually is that our founder, a guy named Howard Konar, who's a Rochester-based philanthropist, just kind of ruining the degradation of civic life, but just the nastiness, the stuff that we've we've started to see these last couple of years that's really come to a head. So he wrote a book called Common Ground, um, which used to be the name of our organization, where he just laid out, you know, here are a couple of places where I think we could get something done. Like, remember when we almost solved the national debt, but we didn't? Remember when we almost had a comprehensive immigration deal, but then we didn't? And so when did the idea of the Citizens Panel first originate? So we work on the Citizen Panel Initiative with another nonpartisan group called Voice of the People. And that group is run by a political psychologist whose kind of life's work is demonstrating that people have a lot more in common than they think they do on policy. So I think when you look at, at polarization, probably one of the greatest dangers facing our country right now, a lot of that is really 
issues of identities and power struggles kind of coming up against each other. But Voice of the People runs these really interesting surveys called policymaking simulations. People do them online. They take 20 or 30 minutes and you get some education on a topic. We've done campaign finance reform, immigration, um, police reform, criminal justice. You then read these really well-crafted pro and con statements on all these different policy proposals. Those pro and con statements are vetted with experts um, who are proponents and opponents of whatever the proposal is. So they're really good faith arguments for and against these different ideas. Um, You go through that whole process and then you tell us on a scale of one to 10, how do you feel about these different proposals? So Voice of the People fields those nationally and gets this really interesting data. So we, looking at that data, we're like, we want to bring this to some forum where A, people can see it and realize that all this common ground exists, and B, they can have a conversation directly with their elected official about it. So that's how the initiative was born. And after going through several hours of tape of the citizen panels, it is kind of striking and heartening to hear people discussing important, complex issues without the usual kicking and screaming. Those body cameras, I think, are really essential to building back up the trust. Will these be buried in with other things that people have to decide on? Many of the communities, of course, in Bucks County are very diverse. But I find that that is not represented on the police force. One response that surprised me, and and I thought it was a bit of a no-brainer, was the response to the de-escalation and use of force as a last resort. Does that surprise you, worry you, or give you pause? Like a breath of fresh, depolarized air. But Jillian's own background is a big factor here. After all, Congress members have had a lot of harsh experiences with town halls. So it can't be easy convincing them to meet with constituents in a forum controlled by an outside group. Jillian worked for the Bloomberg administration in New York City, not entirely occupied by shy people. And she's also a former Capitol Hill staffer from Georgia, who has attended a lot of town hall meetings as well. The sort of common thread here for me is that I just have experience, both professional and life experience, talking to a lot of different kinds of people. So I grew up in a conservative community in the South. I'm from Georgia. The congressional district I grew up in uh, was represented at the time by Newt Gingrich, the sort of, you know, divisive, I guess we'll say, Speaker of the House in the mid to late 90s. That area has changed a lot. Metro Atlanta just helped elect two Democratic senators. So there's a lot of change going on there. But um, when I grew up there, it was a conservative Southern Baptist community almost exclusively. There are a lot of Trump voters in my family, both in 2016 and 2020. And I moved to New York City to go to college. So my very early political engagement was in a very blue place. And I always felt a little bit politically homeless. Like I just kind of wanted to explain to my conservative Southern Baptist high school friends and my liberal, very diverse friends in New York, what the other side was thinking in a way that didn't require people to leave their values at the door, but could at least at least provide some perspective. You know, if you live in New York City and you don't understand why anyone would ever own a gun, I can say, oh, like, you know, I grew up in a place where a bunch of people owned guns and like, yes, guns are tied to all kinds of problems, but also I know a lot of responsible gun owners, that kind of thing. I think those are conversations that you don't necessarily get to have. That is great background for this kind of work. And it reminds us of several season one guests working to bridge the partisan divide, such as Stephen Hawkins of the research group More in Common. Regarding polarization, they coined the term the exhausted American majority. And so I found that in about a 10-year span, I had swung fully from a 
a missionary, a Christian missionary style, all the way over to a progressive or liberal missionary organization. And so I'm now in a place where I've taken a step back from both of those two worlds and am really interested in how we can weave them back together and how we might come back together as a society. As audacious as that sounds, it's a very compelling mission for me personally because I have a lot of affection, a lot of respect, and a lot of friendships and and relationships more generally in both worlds. But we should also say that this is not our first episode on the topic of congressional town halls. That's right. In episode seven of our first season, we learned about the bipartisan congressional town halls held by centrist Democrat Jason Altmaier with the centrist Republican next door. We invited all of our constituents jointly and we got a great mix. We had a wonderful discussion no theatrics, all the theatrics that you see at these partisan town hall meetings with the gotcha questions and people yelling and screaming. None of that happened. Completely civil discussion about the issues. And we had a great experience. And spoiler alert, those bipartisan town halls were shut down by the congressional leaders of both parties. The Civic Genius Panels also strive for bipartisanship, but with a different approach. There's a selection process for attendees and some important prep work led by Dr. Steve Call at Voice of the People. He's a University of Maryland professor of political psychology with decades of polling experience in the U.S. and internationally. The program for public consultation at the University of Maryland is the entity that does the active uh, recruitment and development of the survey and administering of it. Well, first, let me give the background that we've for years now been doing this with large national samples. Uh, We've done dozens of these, and overall, more than 80,000 people have participated online in these processes nationally. Now, what we've been doing more recently with this citizen panel project is that we go in a specific congressional district, and uh, we work this out with the member of Congress, and um, we do this kind of survey in the district, And then we invite people who have participated in the survey to come to an event. We call it a citizen panel forum. We break into small groups and have discussions about the issues and so on, so they can kind of get a richer sense of what other people think and and what the issues are. And then we bring the member in, and uh, we have people in the group elaborate more on how they're thinking about the issue. And then the member responds, and then there's a real discussion. It's not like a town hall meeting where people are yelling, my side, my side. They're thinking together, and they're thinking with the member. You could call it a deliberative environment, and it happens spontaneously. You don't have to tell people to do it. It's not really even that hard to get people into that state of mind if you give them the right information. You've been doing this for a while, and usually you know, methodologies are refined. Has your method changed at all with time? We've been working on this for well over a decade at the Program for Public Consultation. And uh, yes, we refined it, but there's a basic design, which is that we take an issue that is in play. Often it's a piece of legislation in Congress, but it can also be an issue with the executive branch. And we boil down or pull out the key, what we call choice points. And these are choices that members of Congress are going to be making. And then we give people a briefing on the issue, and then we present them arguments, pro and con, and they evaluate each argument independently, and then ultimately they make the recommendation on that choice point. 
a lot of our listeners are independents or unaffiliated voters in some states called nonpartisans. Sometimes it's not so easy to identify them as it is for Republicans and Democrats. So how do you solve that problem? Well, we ask them about their partisan affiliation using very standard language. And then we make sure that the sample is representative of the district in terms of partisan affiliation, as well as other demographics like gender, education, income, race, and so on. And then we're particularly interested in seeing what are those areas, what are those positions where there is uh, overlap in the views of Republicans and Democrats. And it turns out there's actually quite a bit. We tend to think of Republicans and Democrats as being very crystallized types of people. Now, if you ask people to place themselves on a spectrum, say, from left to right, in Congress, you would have a strong cluster on the left and a you know big cluster on the left and a big cluster on the right, and not many people in the middle. We call that a U-shaped curve. But if you take the public and you ask them to position themselves on that spectrum, you have just the opposite. You have a big bulge in the middle. So that doesn't people mean that people are just simply in the middle. They're saying, well, I value the, I think our, the values on both sides are at least to some extent important. And that's where people most naturally come from. And they have to get pushed and harangued and <laughs> harassed to get over on one side and to suppress their concerns about uh, the values that are expressed on the other side. It's not a natural state. There is this tendency to think that people are fundamentally polarized and you have to really work to get them to, you know, see outside their scope. But in fact, they kind of naturally see both sides and you actually have to work to get them, you know, into those uh, uh, crisp categories. That was Professor Steve Cole of the University of Maryland and the nonprofit Voice of the People. His group works with Jillian Youngblood's Civic Genius on these more deliberative town hall style meetings. Some of the thorny issues covered include immigration, energy and environment, and police reform. And after some initial concerns, these Congress members do lean into the opportunity to have real dialogue with constituents, you know, without any gotcha questions and heckling and all that partisan stuff. Now, and let me, let me, let's do it now. Sit down and shut up. Thank you for being here. It's part of my job. I'm amazed. I, you're not going to find a congressional district in America where you get 60 people showing up in 110 degree climate change weather to talk about campaign finance reform. That was great give and take. And I thought the civility that people exhibited and the thoughtfulness that they exhibited um, was gratifying. You all said things that made me rethink some things today here and, and put a finer point on it. And I really appreciate uh, it was really a good robust discussion right off the bat. I do think when people get into a group like this, that people try to be fair-minded and not like, you know, cable news commentators. You know, people try to listen to each other. And... That's an accomplishment in our polarized climate. So we wanted to learn more about the secret sauce at Civic Genius. How do they cook up a civil conversation at a time when so much of our politics is not just partisan, but downright hostile? And it looks like a big part of that is just doing your homework before coming to the event. One thing that happens a lot at our events is people come in having gone through the policymaking simulation. So, you know, whether or not they've already got a strong opinion on a topic, they've gone through this process where they read, they read an argument for something and an argument against something. And people tell us all the time, you know, I 
think that I mostly am in favor of whatever this policy proposal is, but I do see the other side of it. And some people will say it actually changed my mind, um, which does happen occasionally. More often people will say, I think I still know how I feel, but I get it a little bit better. And I think that I could compromise on this issue a little bit. So what is it about the format of the panels that helps promote civility? So I think there are a couple of things about the format that make it possible. One, it sounds a little bit silly, but we just lay some ground rules. Political conversations in this country, whether they're in person or online, have gotten really angry and really caustic in a way that I don't think appeals to most people. So I think one is we just say, listen, this is where we're going to have a civil conversation. We're here to have a thoughtful discussion with each other and with our elected representative. The constituents in this case get to talk first, which I think is really important. So I think this format makes people feel like they're really being heard, which is such a critical way to break through polarization. So people are already in that mindset. And then you have to sit at a table or be in a Zoom room with a bunch of strangers and people aren't wearing like red and blue pins. So you don't know who's who. So it kind of, it revives this civic experience where everyone needs to start off in a civil way that I don't think people get. I mean, civic life in this country has degraded a lot over the past 50 or so years. So we're trying to kind of revive that where you're meeting some strangers, you know they're in your community and you don't know who they are. So your inclination is to just be nice. And that's the whole tone of the event. And then the other piece of it is that we have this data. We did, for example, an event on policing and public safety in Pennsylvania. And that was with Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, who's a Republican. Um, he's a former law enforcement officer. He was one of three Republicans who voted for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. He's got a really interesting perspective on policing. So I think the constituents recognized that right away. There were 10 proposals, I believe, that were surveyed for that event. And six of them, we could show that there was common ground between Republicans and Democrats. So six out of 10 is pretty good. If you could do six out of every 10 proposals on the table, because actually people across the aisle agreed on them, we would get some things done. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that Fitzpatrick Citizens Panel, where a woman of color is reading the legislation and concerned that Fitzpatrick is in favor of defunding the police, which he's not in favor of. And she says, you know, are you sure you want to do that? And then he explains, the law enforcement officer explains that that's only in extreme circumstances, but they were both defying, you know, the stereotypes that we might place them in. For me, it's, it's a bit troubling. I just can't imagine that any city would absolutely just defund or get rid of a police department and not have any, that's number one. And number two of that, significantly reduces the police department's budget without reallocating a portion of that money. So I just would like to have your opinion, Congressman yeah. Fitzpatrick. Thank you. Uh, with regard to, to my piece of legislation, Joyce, it, it only deals with the extreme circumstances. Body cameras, um, training, all these things cost money. We need to add funding to those programs if we're actually serious about reforming police. But when we start talking about abolishing or eliminating police departments, there's nothing bipartisan about that. And my personal view is it would be incredibly harmful uh, to all of our communities across the country. Thank you. Does that happen very often? 
Yeah, I think that happens a lot. And I'm so glad that you pulled out that example, actually, because it was really um, it was really indicative of how these conversations can go. And I think it speaks to what I was saying a little bit earlier about people having an opportunity to step out of their identity boxes. So much of our politics is really performative. And when you can create a place where people are like, well, you know, yes, I think, for example, that the police should not use excessive force where it isn't warranted. I guess that's what excessive means. But I do want law enforcement in my neighborhood. And when you can really get into what those specific proposals are, you realize that you're a lot closer than you thought. So then would you agree that in our current political environment, it's mainly the fringes that seem to be stirring the pot, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely think the narrative of extreme polarization is really driven by the fringes. You know, when you look at this data that's the basis for the Citizen Panel Initiative, you see something pretty wild, which is that even in very red districts and very blue districts across the country, these 150 plus proposals that we talk about in this initiative, they have majority support in the most conservative and the most liberal districts in the country. So in a very red district, you might not have a majority of Republicans who support, but you have an overall majority. And same thing in a very blue district. That really is pretty hard to refute. I just think that party identity is kind of uninteresting in this conversation. Like the thing we should be getting at is finding a way to achieve our shared values. And there is abundant evidence that we share enough values that we can find a way to do that. So it turns out their secret sauce is not even that secret or that complicated. First, make sure that people are well-informed. Second, establish a few ground rules. And third, sprinkle in some appeals to their better nature. And then presto, civil things will happen. This was incredible. I think it's important for members of Congress to be held accountable by their constituents. I endorsed the format. It was an open kind of a forum. And you can sit across the table from a neighbor or look at some data or some information and say, gee, maybe there's another way to think about this. I was surprised is how much the Democrats and Republicans' views were similar. Fabulous opportunity to give us insight as to what our legislators have to go through and sift through to make a decision. The issues aren't black and white. There's a lot of gray area. I took the immigration survey myself. I'm only one person. I argued with myself about the answers. People realize that decisions aren't made as it's good or bad. It's, it's based on weighing the different pros and cons. In the end, you have to make a choice, and the choice might not even be perfect. So yeah, I, I heard a lot of discussions like that today. As of this date, Civic Genius has had five citizen town halls, with several more in the works, but civility's not the easiest thing to scale up. So we asked both Steve Cole and Jillian Youngblood about their aspirations for the civic panels. Could they have a ripple effect beyond just those people in attendance? First, Dr. Cole, a voice of the people. There's a tremendous frustration in the public about the perception that special interests dominate that members of Congress spend all kinds of time trying to fundraise and that they're influenced by their donors and, and not uh, that they're not really listening to the people. So, and that undermines the uh, confidence in government. So it's really key that the public 
has the experience that members are listening. And that's why it's really critical that the member comes. Now, the members, this, this is really interesting. They often come in a little nervous at first. Oh, my God, are, are people going to yell at me? And then they realize, oh, yeah, we're having a kind of meaningful conversation. And they relax. And, and there is a real discussion. And that's what people want want to know is that we're, we're all here together thinking about what's for the common good. How can we best serve the common good? And it's not just about the people who go to the event. It's important for people in the district to know that this kind of thing is happening, that the member is listening to the people. This is really important for developing confidence in democracy. And I think it would be great if there was a congressional appropriation to support this kind of activity so that we could really take it to scale, to have a national academy for public consultation that develop these policymaking simulations and, and really do this on a large scale. And so whenever there is a major vote to come up in Congress, that we would be doing these kinds of these processes all over the country. And Jillian Youngblood of Civic Genius on her ideas for taking the citizen panels out of the test kitchen and to a wider population. It's a great question and one that we certainly think about all the time. So one quick way, relatively quick way to scale these would be in addition to doing them congressional district by district, I think we could also do these statewide with senators, which would just bring a lot more people into the events. I think the real answer though, is to formalize this idea that members of Congress should consult their constituents. There are all kinds of caucuses in Congress. I mean, there's the craft beer brewing caucus. There's the 4-H caucus. So, you know, what I would like to see a listen to your constituents caucus or a right to petition caucus, something where members opt in and say, I want to affirmatively be part of this group. You know, I'm going to do four of these a year. I'll do one every quarter. When I'm back in the district, I'll do them in person. When I'm in Washington, I'll do them online. It's going to be part of my persona that that's the kind of member I am. It's going to be my political identity that the thing I care about most is what my constituents want. And I think if you can really build that into the culture, you can change the culture of Washington. And I think that you can dial down a lot of the volume back home. Hi, Congressman Fitzpatrick. So nice that you could be with us this morning. And I want to congratulate hey, you. Congressman Fitzpatrick, uh, welcome. Going back to the four proposals. That was Jillian Youngblood of Civic Genius. And at the end there, a bit of contrast from not-so-civil town halls of recent time with the more structured citizen panels. These are part of a movement towards deliberative democracy where a cross-section of a district is selected for serious policy discussion with Congress members in attendance. There are other groups making similar efforts at Stanford and Ohio State, and there's a good amount of citizen panel material available on the Civic Genius website and Vimeo account. Check their schedule for upcoming panels in case there's one coming to your district. And we'll plan to check back with Civic Genius to see if they're able to scale their events to a wider number of congressional districts in the future. Meantime, next episode, two geographers named Ryan tell us about one fundamental factor that unfortunately does tend to polarize Americans. The simple fact of where you live.
What we can see is that even within cities, you'll see that Democrats and Republicans separate from each other. They live in distinct places. And what surprised us even more is if you go down to even smaller levels in those cities, if you go down to neighborhoods within the same city, you'll see that Democrats and Republicans tend to separate from each other a little bit, even within the same neighborhood. They don't live in the same places. And that surprised us. That's one of our special guests next time, Ryan Enos of Harvard University. His just-published work in the journal Nature was also featured on the front page of the New York Times. Please stay tuned for the geography of polarization, share us on social media, review us on Apple Podcasts, and visit our website for more information. Also, edition two of the Purple Principle in Print newsletter is available through our website. This has been Robert Pease and Emily Cressetti for the Purple Principle team, Allison Byrne, producer, Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer, Emily Holloway, Research and Outreach, Dom Scarlett, Research Associate. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney.